Well, uh, let's get into our uh, study this morning. We're going to be looking at a very familiar story and, uh, and a very complex story at the same time. It's actually the central story of the first 11 chapters of the Bible. First 11 chapters has this central story that takes up Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. On either side of it, there's a genealogy. In chapter 5, there's a genealogy. In chapter 10, there's a genealogy. And, and so this really is the heart of the message of the first part of the Bible. And so we're going to dive into that today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. We thank you for uh, how you're speaking, how you're working, and what you call us to be and do. Lord, as, as we are living in these days, as we are living in, in our generation, may we, as Noah, be found uh, uh, righteous and whole and pursuing you and walking with you uh, so that we can be witnesses of your grace and your mercy and your goodness. Lord, we ask that you would be with us today as we study your word. And may we hear it uh, fresh. May we see the realities that you're pointing to. And may you open our hearts to the wonderful grace that you have for us in Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be ducking in and out of a few passages today because the, the whole flood narrative and the whole story of Noah takes up a lot of space in, in our Bibles. It starts really in chapter 5. The whole account uh, spans from uh, the... Uh, the genealogy that has the genealogy from Adam to Noah, and there's 10 generations there. And then, uh, again, if we skip over to chapter 10, then we have the generations of Noah that go from Noah to Abram, and that's another 10 generations. And so there's a 10-generation genealogy on each side of this. is very, very carefully crafted narrative that's... Uh, artistic and beautiful. And, and even within the flood story, once we hit uh, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we, we get really a concentric pattern uh, that talks about, you know, God's, God sees uh, what's going on. He decides to do something about it. And, and it all comes down to really the heart of this thing is that God remembered Noah in chapter 8 and all the beasts and livestock that were with him in the ark. And he made the wind to blow his spirit, the ruach, Again, this kind of ties us back to Genesis chapter 1. Over the earth and the waters subsided. And so in many ways we're dealing with creation 2.0 and Adam and Eve 2.0 and Noah and his family. This is a reboot of creation and the purpose that God has for humanity. Because he's going to repeat the exact same words to Noah after the flood. You'll fill the earth, subdue it. Uh, there's going to be a relational change in the animal kingdom with, with humanity, but the, the, the heart of what God wants for us and what he calls us to be, even though we are sinful and broken and continue to hurt one another and our world, is still the same. God has created us in his image for his glory to rule over this earth, for us to take care of it, for its flourishing, and for the glory of God. I mean, we covered that in the first few weeks of the Gospel Project, and we're kind of getting back to those today a little bit, but this, this narrative, this story of Noah, it's, 
it's got a lot of complexity to it and we can't get into all that complexity. If you, if you want to read through it and then kind of puzzle out some questions, uh, that'd be really good to do. But uh, we're going to be hitting some key ideas uh, through this. And it all has to do with the fact that God will judge sin. God judges sin. That's really our, our first uh, main point here today is that God declares that wickedness will bring judgment. And that's important for us to know. That, that's a key element to the whole gospel story that goes throughout the Bible, that God cannot in his holiness and his justice tolerate sin. We'll, we'll take a look at that. But in the midst of this, God offers us grace as a means to escape judgment. That God is gracious. He, he looks on Noah with favor, grace. The, the Hebrew word there is, can be translated either way. That God had grace on Noah. God has grace on us too. God offers grace as a means to escape judgment. And God provides salvation through judgment. And so those are our three main thoughts that we're going to look at today. Uh, God declares that wickedness will bring judgment. God offers grace as the means to escape judgment. And then uh, God provides salvation through judgment. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to just going to read through uh, a number of passages and, uh, from chapter 6 to chapter 8 and just make a few comments and then we'll get into those three main ideas. Okay, so Genesis 6, verses 5 to 9. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then just jump down a few verses to verse 13 to 14. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, now just, just a, a, a fun little tidbit here. Uh, again, the artisticness of the Bible comes out here, literarily. Uh, the, the word for ark is the word teva in Hebrew, and it occurs seven times prior to the flood in, in the instructions for, that, that God gives Noah to build the teva, and then it happens seven times after the flood when uh, the teva is upon the waters and the teva comes to rest on the mountains, and everything that happens in there. Another seven times. So seven times before the flood, seven times after the flood, this Hebrew word is repeated. And of course, seven is the number of completeness. And so this is an important word. Uh, it's very central. Then the author, authors or editors or, or final, uh, the final version of the Pentateuch as we know it uses this word one other time. 
only once. And actually, it doesn't occur at all in the Hebrew Bible other than this one other time. And that is in Exodus chapter 2, where Moses' mother has a son and sees that he is good. But because of the decree of Pharaoh, she fears for his life. So she makes him a basket, a teva, and coats it inside and out with pitch and sets it on the, in the Nile River to save him. And, and the author wants us to connect these two stories, right? Uh, this, this word is very specific. It's only used 15 times in the whole Bible. Seven times in God's instructions to Noah to build the Teva in the, the resultant flood on which the Teva floats and through which the salvation of humanity is assured in this Teva that God instructs Noah to build it and cover it inside and out with pitch and Moses' mother does exactly the same thing with this little wicker basket sets it on the water. And out of that comes the salvation of Israel. And so maybe that's something you want to puzzle over. I know that we, we could, I could probably spend a whole sermon just on the connection between what God is doing in saving Moses in a teva and the, the restart, uh, the, the establishment of his special people and the same thing that he's doing here in, 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 in uh, Genesis chapter 6 to 9. Uh, because I think there's a repeated pattern that happens in Scripture, and, and it's kind of this. God uh, sets apart uh, people for a special relationship with himself, but people are sinful, and they break that relationship, and, and that relationship has a, a disconnect with the land. And so this happens to Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they break God's command, and then they are, they are exiled from the land out, out of the garden. And they face judgment, and, and wickedness increases. But God has a plan, and he will restore. And we get the line of Seth. And then Noah. <laughs> in the days of Noah, mankind is wicked, and, and, and God says, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the Adama. I'm going to wipe out Adam from the Adama. Remember, those two words are related. Uh, the ground, the land, the dirt that Adam was taken from, he will, uh, he, I'm going to wipe them out. But I'm going to save a remnant. There will always be this remnant that is saved. But there's an, a time of exile. There's a time away from the land. There's a time in the ark where they're exiled from the land. And then there is a restoration that happens. And this happens over and over and over again. Ultimately, in the exile that Israel experiences from the promised land. And I think all of these stories are, are actually speaking to a, a people in exile to give them hope in a future to say, God will restore. Anyway, that takes us way too far afield. We need to get back to Genesis chapter 6 and, and, and the flood story and Noah and his boat and, uh, and see what happens here. Genesis chapter 6, 17 to 22. Uh, let's read this. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did it. He did all that God commanded him. Okay, just just briefly on the, on this text before we get to the to, to the rest of it. Notice notice that, that God is seeing is saying here is what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to deal with the problem that the world is in right now. I'm just going to wipe it out and start it all over again with you, Noah, and your family. And Noah did this. He fulfilled it. This shows Noah's obedience and faith to the word of God. God doesn't uh, just do stuff. He involves people in the stuff that he's going to do. Uh, One author said, God doesn't just act, he tells. And and we are people of the word. We have to trust the word of God. Noah had to trust this word of God. Uh, Here's just kind of the beginning of the instructions, right? I mean, uh, in in this, uh, we we skipped over, you know, God gave him all these dimensions and, and there's a lot of details that God gives Noah about what he needs to do. The key thing isn't all the details. The key thing is that it was probably a hundred years between this and when it actually happened. If, if you go back uh, into chapter 5, you, you'll find that Noah is about 500 years old when he has his three sons. And then uh, when we get into this uh, chapter, that when, uh, when the flood actually happens, Noah is 600 years old. And so there's a hundred year gap here between uh, chapter 7 and when we first meet Noah in chapter 5. So Noah's got a lot of work to do here, right? And it hasn't rained before. <laughs> this has never happened before. So God tells Noah, here's what's going to happen. Here's what I need you to do. And it's going to be a 100-year wait. How patient are you with God's timing? When God doesn't come through for us, you know, when we pray, you know, Lord, would, would you just heal this person? Would you meet, would you draw that person uh, to yourself? Lord, I've, I've got, you know, kids that are really not, not following you anymore. Lord, would you, would you reach them and, and, and bring them back to yourself? Uh, uh, God, would you, would you fix the mess that our country is in? How long are you willing to wait for God's answer? Are you willing to wait a hundred years? God called Abram and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you the father of nations and uh, Sarah is going to bear you a son. And, and we'll get to this later, but Abram has to wait, what, 25 years for that to happen. I mean, that's short compared to Noah. Noah's building a boat 
over a hundred years of time going on here, and he has to just do it in faith. He is, he is responding to the word of God, and he is committed to living out what God has called him to do, even though it doesn't look like this is going to be a reality anytime soon, other than the fact that he's going to have this big boat in his driveway, and everybody's going, what are you doing building a boat so far from the ocean, dude? But God says he's going to bring a flood, and it's going to wipe everything out, and the only way you're going to be saved, Noah and your family, is to be on this boat. 100 years. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, has a short little bit, you know, in, in, the, in the roll call of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Uh, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen... Remember, faith is the essence of things unseen, the substance of things hoped for. Uh, back at the beginning of the chapter. And that's probably like an older King James version of that one, but that's a song I learned at like the Pines Bible Camp. We sang that song. Um, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world because and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah had to act on the word of God without really much evidence. God's word. That's all he had to go on. And sometimes that's all you and I have to go on too. Noah did this. He did it all. All. He did all that God commanded him to do. Now let's skip over to uh, chapter 7, verses uh, 11 to 13. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, entered the ark. And so that's, that's the, 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 the turning point. This is, you know, God said it, now God is doing it. Here is the follow-through. And they spend close to a year on the ark. Now, you know, building and prepping, you know, and, and making all this investment, that probably would have tested the faith of the family, would it not? I mean, we don't know anything about... Uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth until after the fact. We don't know anything about how Noah's wife was feeling about this uh, or the wives of his sons. We, we really, they're, they're non-players in, in the drama. It's just Noah. But they're with him. They're, they're around. They must have been helping. But imagine now you're shut in this box and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and then you're adrift for another 150 days, if you look ahead. The water prevailed on the earth, right at the end, uh, verse 24, chapter 7, 150 days. And then at the end of 150 days, the water abated, and the seventh month and the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. 
And then there's these 40, you know, the 10th month. Of, it's, it's close to a year that these guys are on this boat with all the animals. Uh, and, you know, there's no record of how, how did they deal with all the dung and all the food and, uh, and the stench and the stink of basically living in a floating zoo, right? I mean, this is, this is nuts. But here they are, and they have to have faith that in the midst of what they are experiencing, trapped in this box, whatever that was like floating on a sea of calamity, topsy-turvy, turbulent waters, I mean, this, this is not a happy little precious moments arc scene. Uh, I was reading one author today, and, and he said, I don't understand why parents put these cute little arc scenes on their nursery walls for their kids, because this is the most violent chapter of the Bible. This is the most violent story other than the return of Christ at the end of time. Right, you know, we have the little precious moments arc, and it's got, you know, the happy. Everybody's happy to be on this boat. I, I don't know if that was true, that they were all happy to be there. And one of the key things is missing. I mean, the water surrounding this boat, I don't know what the world population was at that time. Humanity and animals, but there's a whole lot of corpses floating in the water. Decaying, rotting. Everybody but Noah and his three sons and their wives. So there's Noah, his wife, and three, and three, that's only eight, out of whatever the population of the earth was at that time. Extreme judgment for wickedness. We'll get to these main points in a bit. Let's jump down. Uh, Genesis chapter 18, verses 15 to 16 and 20 to 22. So the waters abated. Noah has sent out these, these birds, uh, discovered that, you know, there's, uh, the, the dove finally doesn't come back. And so he waits another period of time. And then God says, go out from the ark, verse 15. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean burn, bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall, never, shall not cease. So, let's get uh, point number one, and we'll, we'll get to the end of this. God declares judgment. Wickedness will bring judgment. Sin will bring judgment on humanity. Notice the contrast here. Right at the beginning, it says, God looked and saw 
that there was wickedness rampant and every inclination of the human heart was on evil continually. It's like the author is making this huge point that it is so bad. What's the contrast? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. God looked at everything he created and behold, it was good, 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 very, very good. Now God is looking and it's bad. Bad, bad, very, very bad. God's looking. God doesn't act without the knowledge of the situation. He sees what is going on on the earth and he is ready to respond. God is not some distant, faraway God who doesn't care about what's going on. He cares deeply about what's going on. And he acts. Notice that the promise that the serpent made to Eve, that you will know both good and evil by eating this fruit, but by disobeying God, has actually resulted in only one of those being true. Humanity now knows evil and it has taken over the heart. It, humanity has become consumed with evil. But what does it mean that this has pained God's heart? God says, I regret that I have I've created humanity in the first place. Is God saying, whoa, made a mistake here. Man, I did not see that coming. <laughs> no, not at all. Sin pains God's heart. God is omniscient, but he is deeply grieved by our choices to try to live life without him. And now, I mean, we get in a whole big philosophical debate, you know, if God's omniscient, then why, did, why didn't he stop this? Why didn't he stop evil? Why didn't he stop Eve? Why didn't he intervene when Cain went to kill Abel? Why didn't he warn Abel? Like, Abel gets no warning. Like God comes to Cain and says, hey, what's, what's going on here? Uh, You've you got to kind of do a heart check here, Cain. He doesn't go to Abel and go, hey, psst, Abel. Cain's like really ticked off at you and he's, he's actually planning to kill you. I'd get out of here if I were you. God, God has created us with a will. And God has created us with freedom to choose whether or not we are going to walk in his ways. God has created us with the capacity to reject him in his word. If God were to always intervene in every situation according to our needs, there would be no hunger, there would be no war, there would be no pain, and we think that would be great. But then we would have no freedom. We would have no relationship. There would be no such thing as love. There would be no such thing as, as mercy. There would be just stimulus response, robotic existence. And that's not what God created. God created us for relationship. 
And by doing so, he created us with freedom to choose whether we will walk in that relationship or reject that relationship. And the core heart of humanity right now and ever since Adam and Eve fell has been to turn our backs on God and do it ourselves. We congratulate ourselves on being awesome, on being great, on being able to, to fix whatever uh, social ills that we may encounter, and we, we want control of everything. And that's what gets us into so much trouble. That's what sin is. At its heart is us wanting to do life apart from God. Sin pains God's heart. He is not indifferent to your experience or your expression of sin. Or, or could I say it this way? God is not uncaring, unaware, and unaffected by the sin that has been done to you and the sin that you have done unto others and to him. Sin pains the heart of God. Bruce Waltke in his Genesis commentary says this, the unchanging God is always pained by sin. Moreover, because he is immutable, that means unchangeable, he will always change his plans to do good if people persist in their sin. So if God says, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation, or I, I'm, this is how I'm going to work in your life, this is the promise I have to walk with you. If you reject that, then God will change his blessing. Uh, listen to this, uh, Je Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18 says God is uh, speaking uh, through Jeremiah to his people. And uh, chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. God says this, And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. God's blessing, you know, God's grace, God's favor is not conditional. God loves us. He is unconditionally committed to us, but his blessing on our lives is conditioned on our obedience to his word and his way and his, his spirit leading us. Again from Bruce Waltke, because he, he is immutable, he will always change his plans to do good if people persist in their sin. God declares that wickedness will bring judgment. Now, where does that leave us today? Because this is, I mean, look around. We have wickedness everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if God would step in with some judgment right now and just set everything right and fix the mess of the world. He will do that. <laughs> that is coming. But God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Remember, Noah has been building this boat for a hundred years, and so the neighbors kind of know what's up. 
And now we don't know really, you know, there's one verse in Second uh, Peter somewhere where it's kind of like, no, it can, depending on the translation that, that, you know, we get this idea that Noah preached a, a message of repentance to people, but really that's not found in the Bible. It's obviously not found in the Genesis text anywhere. Uh, it actually comes out in an intertestamental book. Uh, I can't remember what the name of it is, uh, but it's, it's, it's a Jewish uh, uh, writing from uh, 200 years before Christ that, that kind of embellishes the story uh, a lot. What we get here is that Noah just does what God says, and that's it. But the reality is, is that the world is opposed to God. And we continue to be opposed to God in our hearts, in our lives, in our government, everything. It doesn't matter. This isn't a political thing about right and left. You know, conservatives aren't more God-centered than, 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 the, than the liberals. And we're not, we're not voting on who's going to, you know, inaugurate the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is only inaugurated by Christ. We, as Christians, we live in a theocracy where Jesus is Lord and nobody else is. But this is, this is an essential doctrine that we have to kind of internalize. The world is opposed to God. Okay, this is integral to the gospel good news story that Jesus has overcome the world, and in and through Jesus Christ, we too overcome the world. The, the world will hate the, the followers of Jesus because they hate Jesus. Okay, so here's the essential doctrine from the Gospel Project. There are times in Scripture where the term world refers to more than the physical planet Earth or the collective human population. In many instances, the term refers to an active and evil spiritual force that is in direct conflict with God and his kingdom. This evil world forces and this evil world force operates under Satan's control, Ephesians 2, John 14, displaying the same self-centeredness and deceit that is found within his character. Christians are called to overcome the world of spiritual evil by faith in the Son of God. 1 John 5, 4-5. So here's the reality we're living in right now. The world is opposed to God. The world is opposed to God. You know, and you can say, oh yeah, amen, we know that. Uh, but how much of the world is still in our own hearts? Where the lordship of God is not something we embrace and celebrate and surrender to on a daily basis. Because oftentimes we think we're doing pretty good on our own. You know, I'm, I must, I'm Noah in the story. I'm favored of God. But we need to remember that Noah needed to act on the word of God and trust him and be faithful in the midst of a long wait and then in, through the midst of a long storm and then to emerge from the ark and realize. I can't, can't, can, you, can you imagine this? If you were the only family that survived the flood of 2018, that everything else in Grand Forks was completely wiped out and you had to start all over again. How sad would that be? How disheartening would that be? 
But God, when he judges sin, and he does judge sin, God offers grace as the means to escape judgment. Noah found favor with God. Grace, favor. Notice in, in back in chapter 6, verses 8 to 9, Noah's standing with God. This is God's declaration that, that here is a man who is, is righteous and blameless. And this is the first time these words appear in the Bible. And it doesn't mean that he was sinless because everything, you know, the, the whole lead up to this was the whole world was corrupt and sinful, their thoughts bent on evil, but Noah found favor with God. And we don't know why. There, there's no why behind this. There, there's, there's nothing in Noah's life that shows us that he's some sinless guy that never did anything wrong. We know that sin reigned from Adam onward uh, in, in uh, Romans. So... And we know that Noah doesn't last that long. I mean, look what happens right after, you know. Uh, he starts working the ground, plants a vineyard, makes some wine, gets drunk, laying naked in his tent. Things are, you know, back to square one where things didn't get better after the flood. God started over, but things didn't get better. We're going to touch on that in a bit. Noah's standing with God was God's declaration to him. Uh, Genesis uh and then down in verse 13 to 14, Noah needed to act on God's word. We've already touched on that. Then in 6.18, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. And then in chapter 9, he actually makes this covenant. But this is God's covenant. This, uh, this, we don't really have anything like this other than maybe a marriage ceremony where we commit to one another, you know, when we make these grand vows that we probably can never keep, uh, at least not to the, uh, to, to the idealistic way that we make them during our wedding. We, we, you know, we fail in our marriage vows all the time. But married 25 years, I know how much I fail at this, okay? Um, but in a wedding covenant, we make these vows committing to a relationship with certain parameters, expectations uh, from one another. It's a two-sided thing. It's two people coming together to covenant, to live together in this relationship. What God does here, and we'll see it again in Genesis chapter 15 and 17 and 22 and, and a few other places, is that God comes and he says, I am making a covenant with you and there's no response required. God says, I'm making this covenant. It is a one-sided thing. God is saying, I will never curse the ground because of humanity. And then he places his bow in the sky. Now, there's no Hebrew word for rainbow. It's actually bow, like a bow and arrow. You got to think of bow and arrow. Except now the bow is not pointing the arrow into the ground to hit and destroy the ground. It's pointing up. What does that mean? God is saying, I will take the hit for humanity's sin. I will not strike the ground again. I will take the strike. And he did that on the cross. When God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 15 and makes a covenant and Abram's supposed to cut these animals in half and, and, and lay them out and then walk, uh, what normally would happen in an ancient Near Eastern covenant would be that both parties, uh, Abram and whoever he's making a, a covenant with, would walk between the pieces 
and the the uh, that would illustrate the 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 seriousness of the covenant and it basically says, if I break this covenant, if I break the conditions of this covenant, may I become like these severed animals? And yet, where do we find Abram? Sleeping. What passes between the pieces? The presence of God. And so God in that moment makes a covenant with Abram that says, I am giving you this land and I'm going to make your descendants and I'm going to bless all nations through you and I myself If I don't fulfill the covenant, may I become as these animals. But God always fulfills his covenant. This is the very first covenant in the Bible. The very first time the word covenant happens. And God is here saying, I will no longer curse the ground because of humanity's sin. I'm going to turn the bow around and it's going to shoot an arrow straight into heaven and it's going to pierce my heart. I will take the hit for humanity's sin. You see, one of the things that grace does is that grace says, I will take the place of that which is under judgment. You know, we think, you know, well, God's a God of mercy, isn't he? You know, mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, But here's the thing. Mercy presupposes that there's judgment to be dealt out. You can't have mercy on somebody unless they're in a place where they need mercy. And if you need mercy, it means you're in a place where you should be judged, where you're guilty. Grace and mercy imply guilt, imply judgment. And it is only the escape from judgment that is merciful and graceful. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So God offers grace as a means of escape for judgment. Third point, I don't know, we're getting kind of long here, but this is, we're doing four chapters all in one shot here. So here we go. God provides salvation through judgment. There's... This is like the fall 2.0 leading to creation 2.0. In in the fall, there is sin that God sees. Everything is sinful. The inclinations of the human heart is always sinful. We're always hitting evil, evil, evil. We we don't want to do what God wants. We want our own way all the time. And God says, I have to judge that because that is not what I created you to be and to do. And I will bring judgment. I will bring exile from the land. But I will restore. I will preserve a remnant. I will work in grace and mercy and provide for you. God's provision of salvation leads to creation 2.0. At the beginning of of chapter 8, there is the wind that blows over the waters and the deeps, the tahome, and the land emerges again. And we're kind of back to square one. We're back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. When God creates the flood, there is this watery chaos again out of which God creates land. And God saves Noah and his family in the midst of this. You know, I, I was thinking about this this week and I was, I was thinking, you know, we don't know the condition, heart condition of Noah's sons, Noah's wife, Noah's daughter-in-laws. They are there on account of Noah's righteousness. 
Now, often we want to cast ourselves in the story as Noah. We want to cast ourselves in the story of David and Goliath as David. We want to cast ourselves in the story of the prodigal son as the father or the, uh, the, the man who loses uh, a sheep. We, we think we are the shepherd who goes to, or is supposed to go and search for the lost sheep or we're the woman who has to search for the lost coin. But the reality is, is that in all those stories, the hero is actually God himself. Jesus Christ. And Noah is a Christ figure in this moment that his righteousness, his, his wholeness, his blamelessness provides for his family to be on the ark with them. It is through Noah's righteousness that they escape the judgment that is coming. And it, in our case, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, somewhere in there. He's talking about Jesus. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come to pay the price for every sin in your life, Jesus says, so that you can be clothed in my righteousness, that my righteousness is your way into the blessing of God. Noah's family gets included in salvation because of the righteousness of Noah. You and I get to come before the throne of grace, the holiness and the sacred presence of God himself, not because of our righteousness, not because we have been so awesome at life, but because Jesus Christ took the punishment for our sin on himself on the cross. And he gave us as a gift his righteousness so that we could come to that throne of grace and find help in our time of need. This is how the gospel is embodied in this story. We're the wife, the, the sons, the daughters, daughter-in-laws of, of Noah who, who get included in this great salvation moment that God provides through the righteousness of another. God provided the righteousness for us through his son, Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not, no one comes to the Father except through me and uh, making sure that you're a pretty good person. That, that you give to charity, that you, you know, you don't, you don't do anything really bad, but, you know, maybe you swear, uh, maybe you smoke and drink, and, and, and maybe, you, maybe you cheated on your taxes a few times, and you, you speed too much, and, you know, you get tickets and stuff like that, and you get angry easy uh, with your neighbor, but you've never killed anybody, so you're really still quite a good person. You know, God, God, can, God can take that. No, uh, Jesus says quite clearly, no one comes to the Father except through me. Period. End of story. We have one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, how did Noah respond after it all was over? 
Uh, and I mean before he ended up drunk and naked in his tent. Well, that's... Sin happened, and sin continues to happen. And this is the amazing grace of God. God continues to pursue us even though we continually fail him. But, but what does Noah do? He gets off the boat and he worships. He builds an altar. He sacrifices animals. He worships God. And that's where it all comes down to. A life of worship and surrender to God. Well, let's wrap this up and, and go through our, our, uh, our three application questions uh, that deal with our head. Uh, what, what do we need to know about God and ourselves and sin? What about the heart? How do we need to respond in our hearts to this truth? And then what do we need to do with it in our hands? Head, heart, and hands. So first question, what are some of the ways that we fail to take sin seriously? What are some of the ways you fail to take sin seriously? Do you really... Do you really think you're good enough for God? <laughs> that's where we're not, that's when we fail to take sin seriously. When we think that somehow, you know, Jesus died uh, more for other people than for me. Like, I'm pretty good. I didn't quite need Jesus to die for me. That's a sure sign that I am not taking my sins seriously enough when all I consider is how the gospel's good news for somebody else and not for me. You know, I need the saving work of Jesus Christ every day of my life more and more. Remember, mercy implies justice and judgment. That to receive the mercy of God means that I am guilty of something that has broken his heart. But he extends mercy to me because of Jesus Christ. Second question, why is it important to show compassion to those around us? And what are some ways that we can do this? Now, remember, <laughs> we are all sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means we all need grace. That means the guy down the street from you needs grace. It means your neighbor needs grace. It means your wife and kids need grace. It means your, your co-worker needs the grace of God. Remember, Noah still fails. As does Ham, his son, and it just spirals downward again. We are all in need of the grace of God. And therefore, we should have compassion on those who are still struggling with whatever it is that we're not struggling with. It is so easy to point out the sins of somebody else because it's easier to say, wow, they're really screwing up their life. It's really hard for me to look at my own life and say, wow, I'm a mess too. But when we take sin seriously enough, when we take our personal sin, our own failures, then we can maybe start having compassion on those who are on a different, maybe more difficult journey than we are. That they're in a different place on, the, on their knowledge of God and, and, and how he works. So it's important for us to show compassion to those around us because we need the grace of God just as much as the next person. Last question, how do you need to offer yourself to God today in worship and service? 
Remember, Noah's first act, he gets out of the boat, he builds an altar, he worships God. And this should be our default heart and, and, and life. When we realize how serious our sin is and the cost of our sin, that it costs Jesus his life, and that we're sinners and we're all sinners and we're all in need of the grace of God, that when we really, really realize the depth of that, we can hit Romans chapter 12, 1, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's grace to us, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. A living sacrifice is something, you know, uh, uh, I think it was Charles Swindoll said once, you know, the, the hardest thing about being a living sacrifice is it keeps rolling off the altar. It keeps getting up and moving away. It's, it keeps trying to take life back in, into its own control. If you're a living sacrifice, you have you have died to sin. You have died to self. You now live to God. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship, or this is your reasonable service. Either translations work, work, works well, and actually both of them get the idea across. It is. It makes sense to live this way. To live holy open and obedient to the God who has had mercy on me, a sinner. And that's where we're going to leave off today. The story of Noah is the story of the grace of God in the midst of the judgment against sin. The story of Noah points us to Jesus because Jesus took our sin. Isaiah chapter 53, the, 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 the wages that we were owed, the, 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 the sin that tears us down, the iniquity of us all was laid on him and by his wounds we are healed, we are made whole, we are restored. It's only at the cross of Jesus Christ that the sin of the world is fully and finally dealt with. And God will no longer shoot his bow at the earth. He will take the arrow himself. Let's pray. Lord, this is a complex passage with a whole lot of detail. But Lord, if there's one thing that I would ask that we all take away from this today, that your spirit would impress on our hearts the depth of our sin and the need that we have of your grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have, that you came to do just that. That though we are deeply sinful, that the inclination of our hearts is evil all the time continually, you came to set us free from that. You came to defeat that. You came against the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 1, and you won the victory over sin and death. And now, Lord, help us to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 6. Open our eyes to see the depth of our sin and the amazingness of your grace for us. In Jesus' name, amen.